Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? These are words that are given to those all over our nation before they step into the stand and bear testimony about some event or happenings in their life. In fact, we get this word testify or testimony from the Latin word testi, which means three or, or third, meaning that this person who is called to give testimony stands as what might be a third party to the events, sharing what they saw or heard from their own point of view. And what do we call this person? A person who's sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? We call them a witness. A witness, a person, person who shares what they know to those who hear, whether that be a judge or a jury or just a random group of people, all of the important details of this or that. The witness bears testimony. They testify. They share what they know. They are a witness. And I wonder if you've ever been a witness in your life. Not necessarily in the courtroom, but I'm sure that there are many events, some good, some horrible, that if you were compelled to stand and share them with us, you could recount all of the details that would give us a feeling ourselves of being there, of experiencing what you experienced. So whether it's a crime or just handing memories down from generation to generation, Witnesses are an important part, an important piece of remembering what has taken place. And this is not just true in the American judicial system, but it's true in the Word of God as well. In fact, before much of our Old Testament was recorded in written form, it was handed down through oral giving. It was given by witnesses sharing from generation to generation. And so this morning as we jump back into our study of the book of John... This is especially important, as we're going to see, because today, as we now enter into a new section of this introduction that we've been looking at over the last number of weeks, we are introduced to the most important person, the most important witness to Jesus Christ coming. And what is it that this man will witness to? Well, let's go back to John 1 as we begin to figure that out. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we're spending from now until the end of the year looking at these first 18 verses and then from there we'll jump into the main body of John's Jesus history. And So these first 18 verses, we're taking them slowly. So this morning we're just going to be looking at verses 6, 7, and 8 of John 1. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we have provided there some there in the pews for you. Uh, John 1 is found on page 833 in that pew Bible. If you're new to the Bible, you can go ahead and just turn to 833 and find where we're going to be at. And as always, friends, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible of your own, we do have some copies of God's Word there in the back windows. We would love to give you one as our gift to you today. Well, friends, as you've gotten to John 1 by now, let me invite you to stand once more out of the honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read again for us the first 18 verses to give us the context of what we're going to be looking at. Hear now the word of the Lord to us today from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, 
and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated, friends. This morning, as we jump back into these first 18 verses, we're going to focus right there on verses 6 through 8, as I said, and begin really the second paragraph of the introduction. Verses 1 through 5, we'll think about more as what, how they relate to this passage in just a moment, but they kind of gave a succinct truth. But we now see John, the author of this gospel, move to talking about someone new. And as we do this, let me just mention this because it can be confusing to some folks who, who may be new to the book of John. The man who wrote the book of John, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, he is not the same John that is mentioned in verses 6 through 8. That John is a different John. John is a very common name. It still is a very common name. You have Juan, you have Jan. John is, is popular all over the world. And so just the same in this time, there were multiple Johns. John, who wrote this story, actually never refers to himself as John in the gospel. Instead, he calls himself in the gospel the disciple who is beloved by Jesus, the beloved disciple. No, the John that we're going to learn about today is the John that's more commonly known, that you may know him as, John the Baptist. And we learn about him in all of the gospels, but today we're introduced to him in a special way. And so, what do we learn? Well, we're going to see here in just these three verses that John the Baptist was called by God to be a witness. He was called by God to, to bear testimony about Jesus Christ. And as we look at this, we also see that we are called in the same way to continue that ministry of witness, of bearing testimony today, looking back to the one who came to save his people and we really see this in, in four specific ways here that I want you to see. So if you, if you want to write these down, these are the four things I'm going to draw out from these three verses. Number one, in verse 6, I want us to see the calling. The calling. Then in verse 7, I want us to see the work. And third, also in verse 7, I want us to see the goal. So in verse 7, we see two things, the work and the goal. And then finally, in verse 8, the posture. The posture that John takes. So four things, the calling, the work, the goal, and the posture. And as we look at each of them, my prayer is that God would reveal the great joy. The great joy it is for us as His people who stand in this long line of men like John the Baptist declaring the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. So let's start by just considering the calling. 
Look back at verse 6 there in John 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now it seems like a simple enough verse, right? Tells us who he is, tells us where he came from. Pretty simple. There's actually a lot tied up in this verse. What do we find here? We find that, that, that later where John did his work of witnessing in the wilderness, and we'll also learn the way that John cried out with great fervency and fire. But before we ever get to that, we first find why John the Baptist does what he does. Not primarily because he had an axe to grind with the religious leaders of Jesus' day, but because he was set apart for this task by God himself. What a contrast to the way the book begins. I mentioned this, this is the second section, or begins a new section, new paragraph in the introduction, because of the contrast of everything that's so far been stated. The book begins by telling us of this one who was known as the Word, who was with God and was God. Which means that this Word had no beginning. In the beginning we hear in verse 1 of this one who, who had no beginning. Who was God Himself eternally existing in eternity past. But now as we're introduced to John we find something altogether different. He was sent. He had a beginning. There was a time when John the Baptist was not. And then he was created, he was made, and he is sent by the Father. We read about the details of this sending really in Luke's account of Jesus' life. There, if you turn over to Luke, or turn back to Luke, you find that he was born to Elizabeth, who was a woman who was barren and had given up hope of ever having any children. John the Baptist's dad was Zechariah, who served as a priest. He spends most of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John silence because the angel comes to him and tells him that God is going to give him a son. He doesn't believe him. And so the angel makes him mute pretty much for the entirety of the pregnancy. He doesn't begin to speak until John is born. And even we're told what John was like in the womb. When Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus, comes to see Elizabeth, her relative, we find that the Holy Spirit moves upon John in the womb and causes him to leap for joy. But none of that is included here. Now John doesn't get into any of this. John omits the, the backstory of John the Baptist. This history does not move into those details. So why not? Why does John not give us all that we know about John the Baptist here? What's the aim that he's getting at? The focus here is not on the human origins of John the Baptist, but on the God origins, the God-centered purpose for John's coming, for his birth. The very focus here is on the mission of God himself. It's on what we might call the calling of John the Baptist. Now what do I mean by this word calling? It's a word that you may hear Christians use quite often. What do we mean when we say calling? It's an idea that comes up a lot throughout the Bible itself. Like with Abraham, or with Moses, or with Samuel, or David, and many others are called by God. It surrounds this idea of God giving someone a specific mission, a specific purpose, a specific task to complete a great work for him. So Abraham was called to leave his country and his kin and begin a new family from which God would bring forth a chosen people. And Moses was to go back to that people who were enslaved in Egypt and help rescue and bring them out of the bondage that they had experienced. Samuel was then called to deliver God's word to that same people. And David 
He's called to be the king to rule over God's people through seeking after God's heart above all else. And so this concept of calling is one of importance because it drills down on this idea of a God-given mission that a specific person has. And it helps us to understand how and why God acts in the way that He does with this person or that person. Yes, our, our Bible lays out a, a beautiful mosaic of redemption history where God is aiming to redeem a people for Himself since the very fall of humans. And yet we see God act and move in very different and specific ways each step of the way. In fact, think about this in light of the prophets. We spent this last summer looking at the minor prophets, those last 12 prophets that, that make up the end of our Old Testament. And we saw even with them that they were called to deliver God's word to God's people in a specific time and in a specific place. And so they delivered it in a very specific way, aiming for what? For reformation among God's people. We might say that they were called, those minor prophets, to set right what had become broken by the people's sin and rebellion. And now we come to this man, John. In the flow of John 1, 1 through 18, John the Baptist really is the first human that we're introduced to. We don't find out that, that the Word takes on flesh until way down the line in verse 14. And so here is the very first human that we're introduced to in John's Gospel. And what is John doing here? Verse 6 tells us there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now just aside from just learning his name... The main thrust here is that he was sent from God. That he was given a commission, a purpose, a ministry from God himself. He's given this peculiar task that we'll see mentioned in just a moment and highlighted throughout the gospel itself. But he's told to take up a charge from God himself. He's called forth at a certain time and in a certain place for a certain task. And we'll get to all of that in just a moment, but I don't want you to fly past this idea of calling, or as John 1, 6 says, sent. What does this mean and what does this mean for us? The word here, to be, it means to be one who delivers a message or declares a truth. In short, it's this idea of a messenger themselves. And in fact, in the Greek, the word is apostello. Apostello, which is the exact word that we often get from our often used word, apostle a sent one, a messenger, a proclaimer. John, we see here, is called forth by God to speak a specific word to his people. So we see how this connects back to the Old Testament itself. Because we heard that this was going to happen. And this is where, if you were here for the Minor Prophets series, it gets really exciting. Because this is how the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, holds this forth already for us. This idea of a messenger. Do you remember what it says? Well, let me remind you, if you don't, if you are here, tune in. Here we go, Malachi 3.1. It says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Just a little bit later in Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so we find here in our introduction to the history of Jesus Christ, the one who was to be that messenger, this peculiar prophet, if you will, that Isaiah would say calls him a voice crying out in the wilderness. This is why Jesus would go on to call John the Baptist the final prophet. 
He is the bridge between the old and new covenants, playing a significant role to hold the two parts of our scriptures together, to hold the two words from God himself together, his word in the old, and Jesus Christ, the word made flesh in the new. Which leaves us with a bit of a burning question, I think at least. Is there anything here to encourage our own lives? Aside from enriching our minds to understand the, the role and the place and the purpose of John the Baptist, is there anything practical here for us to, to take away? Is there anything that we should grab from this? Well, friends, the beauty even of this simple verse is that we see how God continues to sovereignly rule over the world and uses His people even today as His mouthpieces to declare hope and life in Jesus Christ. Or to say it more simply, the ministry of John was handed is the same ministry that in some ways is handed down to us. No, we shouldn't try to be John the Baptist. That's near impossible because of when he served and how he served and what he did. But on the other hand, the calling of John to be a messenger for God is a command for all of us. This is why Paul calls God's people on numerous occasions to consider their calling into salvation and how that calling is meant to go forth in their lives. Consider Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 3 is that calling unto salvation now works itself out in the life of the local church. But not just in the local church. This is what Paul says to the Thessalonian church. To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of God, our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. We put these verses together, what do we find? Well, friends, we find that God is still in the business of calling people out of darkness and into light so that so that he may call them to declare the glories of Jesus Christ in word and in deed. Do you see that? Do you see how obedience to God flows out of our calling unto salvation? That as God has saved you, he has saved you, as he also says in Ephesians 2, unto good works. That God has not just given specific people and specific times to declare specific messages. Yes, that's true. And we should know and thank God for those He used long ago to propel the glory of the gospel forward in time. We should also begin to see that this calling to salvation is also a calling to declare salvation to others. It's something God has called each of us to do. That's why Paul says to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That our calling unto salvation would roll into a calling of living a life that displays that salvation to others. And to put it simply, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you've been saved by grace of God, by the grace of God, then you've been called to be a witness yourself. But be a witness of what? To testify to what? 
What is it that we're to hold out exactly? What is the message that we are called to deliver? Ourselves? Our church? The latest and greatest Christian book that we just read? Well, let's keep moving through our text as we see what John was specifically called to. So let's consider the work, the work that he was called to. Back in John 1, 6, he says, There was a man sent from God. His name was John. And then here we go, verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Now we begin to see that John was not just sent by God, but that he was sent with a purpose. He was sent on purpose. John was sent not to boast or, or to talk about himself and how wonderful he was, but to boldly point out the sinful darkness of the day. To boldly point out the twisted track that God's people had began to go on so long ago and to call them back. To call them back in repentance and to walk in the light that was now shining in the darkness. To put their trust and their hope in this one Jesus, the Messiah, the light of the world. And we're going to see this more clearly in the weeks and months to come as this gospel story continues to bring John up to the surface. But what is emphasized here in this little introduction is that John was sent to bear witness. We considered what a witness was way back there in the introduction. But think about this again in light of John's calling. A witness is someone who bears testimony, right? They, they, they share a truth or an event who talks about what they know, not just to convey a set of facts, though. Witnesses don't just stand up and share a bunch of facts for no reason, but they do so in order to persuade, in order to enlighten and enliven. In a courtroom, certain witnesses are called forth not just to convey the facts, but to convince someone or the jury of someone's guilt or innocence. This is why the witness must swear to tell the truth, because their testimony, they may very well lead to a verdict of guilt or innocence. What about John here? What has, called, what has God called John the Baptist to bear witness to? Well, it's as if God, the judge of all, has called John the Baptist forward to the witness stand. And his role specifically is to speak of the glories of this light that is coming into the world. The text tells us that he bore witness about the light. What light? The light that we've heard about there in verses 4 and 5 of John 1. The light of the world that holds out salvation into the darkness of sin and sorrow. And John's job is to be a witness to this. Or as Isaiah 40 verse 3 prophesies about John the Baptist, that he is a voice crying out in the wilderness, what? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So Mark 1.4 tells us about John the Baptist that he appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But friends, who's he crying out to? Who's he talking to? Who is the, the jury in this case, if you will? Well, John's speaking to his own people, to those who had neglected so much of the grace of God. 
to those who had continued to turn away from God's ways, though they thought that they were walking in His ways, but instead they had built this system of complex commands that centered on God's salvation, not coming from the Savior, the Messiah, who was to come, but from the level of obedience of each person that they could attain on their own. And so John took up a ministry that, as I heard one pastor say once, evangelism sometimes is needed inside the church as much as outside of it. And so John takes up that very ministry himself. That witnessing to the light was needed amongst his own people just as much as it was to the pagans and the Gentiles of the world. So John came declaring that forgiveness of sins did not come through good works or keeping the whole law as the religious leaders of the day were teaching in their pristine tabernacle. No, John came into the wilderness with his unkept clothing and unappealing eating habits and held out the only way mankind can come to God. Through humble repentance, seeking the mercy of God and forgiving sins. He held out this message of, of salvation that comes not from what you do, but from what God Himself does when we turn to Him in humility. And all of that culminates then, as we'll come to see eventually when John saw Jesus. As he's there baptizing in the Jordan, Jesus approaches. And John declares that everyone should now take their eyes off of Him and put them onto Jesus, who was their long-awaited Messiah. And before we look at the goal of all of this work of John, we should say the goal of God, we must consider how the work of John is described here. Because this is specifically how it helps us to know what work we should take up. Because like the previous verse, the words of John 1-7 mean something. I don't think I've said this in a while, but God's words, words mean things. So it's helpful for us to know what those words are, Tell for us to think about the words and, and what they are conveying. Why are these words used instead of other words? And here it all centers around this, these two words, this phrase, bears witness. And we know what this means, and we'll see how John did it in the weeks to come. But what's so interesting here is that just as John being sent by God was not entirely unique to him, so this bearing witness is not entirely unique to John either. To put it simply, John isn't the only one who's called to bear witness. In fact, this same phrase is picked up by another gospel writer who I've already mentioned. Listen how Luke both ends his gospel history of Jesus and begins his second volume that we know as Acts. In Luke 24, 46 through 48, the very end of Luke's gospel, Jesus says this to his apostles. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And so then Jesus says before His ascension to the right hand of the Father in Acts 1, 7 and 8, It is not for you to know the time or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. It shouldn't be a surprise then that this word witness is where we also get our word martyr. One who bore witness even at the cost of their own life. 
Why do I bring this up? What did the 12 apostles and that early church have to do with John the Baptist back here in the beginning of the Gospels? I thought John was more like the Old Testament prophet. What's the connection here? What is his bearing witness about the coming of Jesus has to do with the charge Jesus gives those, to those men in Jerusalem before he ascended to the Father's side? And this is it. That when Jesus arrived for his earthly ministry, and then when Jesus leaves and ascends back to the Father's hand, in both of those places we find those who are called to bear witness about it. And so... As we now await the second coming of Christ, His second advent, is it any surprise to us that we are called to the same ministry, to bear witness to the one who came and who's coming again? So what are we supposed to bear witness to? Well, friends, in some ways, this is what God has always intended for His people to be about. I mean, those guys saw Jesus... John and the apostles, they knew him. John sees the Spirit of God descend on Jesus. We'll get to that. The apostles touched the wounds from his crucifixion. They saw that he'd risen from the dead, and they watched him go into the heavens. How could we ever bear witness like them? And yet this is exactly what we call evangelism. It's what God calls us to do. See, I don't know about you, but, but growing up in a, in a more country church, Sometimes the pastor would get all the members together on Sunday evening and we'd meet in the sanctuary and he would give us a charge and then we'd all go out into the community and what we'd do? We'd go witnessing. We'd go witnessing. We'd go knocking on doors. We'd go to parks. We'd go to grocery store parking lots. And what would we do? We'd tell them the gospel truth. We'd tell them the good news of what Jesus Christ had come into the world to do. To save a people for himself, not through their good works, but through the perfect work of living and then the death of Christ and dying a, a brutal death upon the cross, revealing that, that sin and hell had been defeated when he rose from the dead three days later. That's what we would do when we would go witnessing. And friends, this is the charge God has given us even to this day. Yes, it's good for us to speak of our own spiritual life, how Jesus has saved us from sin. This is what we call our, our personal testimony. And each of us who are followers of Christ here and today have our own personal testimony. It's marked by unique factors. But this is not the primary goal. No, the primary goal is to hold out the risen Savior as the light that shines in the darkness and, and the only light that can truly overcome it. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, this call to be a witness to Christ has also been handed to you. Whether you've only been a Christian for a few weeks or a few months or been a Christian for many, many decades, this is both a privilege and a responsibility to bear witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's the call placed upon every Christian. What we call evangelism or sharing the gospel is not for extra credit Christianity. Holding up the beauty of the gospel is the ongoing task of the whole church. It is not a peculiar hobby for some of us who are just more extroverted. No, it is what is called for every believer in Jesus Christ. So why do we not take up the work more ourselves? 
Why do we not do it more? Well, there are a number of reasons that we could come up with. Perhaps you're thinking of a few now. We don't know what to say. We want to build good relationships and then wait for them to ask us. Maybe we're too busy. We fear that it might get thrown back in our face or they'll ask some question that we don't have an answer to. You might have a reason too of your own. And yet, how is it if we are called and commanded to be those who are witnesses to Jesus Christ that we can kill those reasons, that we can stomp on them and walk forth with the kind of zeal that John the Baptist had in proclaiming the goodness of Christ? Well, I think that's exactly why we are given the very goal of John's ministry there in the second half of verse 7. Look back with me at the end of verse 7. Let's consider this goal. Let me read the whole verse now. It says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. That's what He came to do. That was His work. Here's the goal. That, that's, it's a goal word, that all might believe through Him. So what do we find here? We find that the goal of John's ministry was the same as Christ and the same of, of John the Gospel writer himself. Which is what? That through seeing and knowing the Son of God, they might believe he is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God. He is the light of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And He is the only way that mankind may come back into relationship with the Father. Or to put it more simply, John witnesses to Christ so that people might believe. The way that this is phrased here is, is very interesting. It's very interesting the way it's it's put here. I don't want you to miss this because I think it's, I think it's really helpful for us to, to kill some of those fears and some of those hesitations and, and being witnesses ourselves. Look back at the text. He, meaning John the Baptist, came to bear witness, that it, that to declare, to proclaim, to share about the light that is the Son of God who is the light of the world that overcomes darkness. Now watch this. That all might believe through Him. Now here's the question. Who is him in this verse? Who is the him that it's talking about? That all might believe through him. Is it talking about through the light that is Jesus? That we believe through him? That's, 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 that's a true statement, isn't it? That the only way that we can come to true belief and true repentance is through Jesus Christ, through believing in him. The only way of salvation is through Christ. Is that what John means here? Well, that doesn't make much sense. No, the through him is tied specifically to the he that this whole passage has been talking about. John the Baptist. That's why verse 8, the very next verse, we'll get to that in a minute, but it begins with he, meaning the him that I just talked about. So it reads that John the Baptist came to bear witness about the light that all might believe through John the Baptist. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? What's the goal of God here? What's he getting at? Why, is, why does he say this? That all would believe through John the Baptist. This sounds odd. But if you step back and think about it, it's, it's actually true. This is John the Baptist's unique purpose in redemptive history. That God would send forth this man at this time and in this place that he might announce the arrival of the Messiah. He is the true messenger of God. He shows up and declares to the people of the kingdom that the king has arrived. 
Here he comes. Look for him. He's coming. Here he is. So that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ might look back on John's ministry of bearing witness and exposing the glories of Christ and say that their salvation, in some part, was brought about by his ministry. Not only is that true for them, but that's true for us. That John the Baptist came and spoke, declaring the coming of the Messiah, not just so that they would know, but so that we would know. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you have John the Baptist to thank for it to some degree. And that's the beauty of this whole passage. Because it it helps us see how God has always been in the business of using peculiar people. And we'll talk about John's peculiarity later on. But God has always been in the business of using peculiar people just like us to hold forth His astounding salvation. We see this in all who are called to be His witnesses. Whether it be Abraham or Moses or even the people of God as a whole are tasked to point to the glory of God seen most brilliantly in the face of Jesus Christ. So we must ask ourselves, if John the Baptist had the goal of seeing people come to know and believe and follow Jesus, if this has been the purpose of those who are called of old and called today, what ought be our aim as the called out ones today? As individuals, as families, as a local church, The aim of John to see believers ought to be the same aim of the people of God today. Plain and simple. And this is why. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the central truth we want you to hear. This is why. Because we care about the salvation of souls. And so if you're here this morning and you don't follow Jesus, this is what we want you to hear. This is why we sing these truths. This is why we read these truths. This is, it shapes our prayers. It shapes, it shapes our meetings. Even, even what's going to sometimes be boring member meetings. They're, they're shaped around who God is and the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. It shapes everything that's said from this platform. It should shape every aspect of our families, every aspect of our work. And what is that truth? It is the great love of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, who is the Word, who is the light of the world, who is the very Son of God, who came as a man, God with flesh on, and walked among us. That this Jesus lived a perfect life that all of us have failed to live. Never once sinning like we do daily. And then, not only did He live a life without sin, but He gave Himself over to death, the death of a sinner. So for whose sins did he die? He died for our sins. He died for a people who have walked in darkness. And he is the great light that cleanses us, that cleanses the darkness out of our hearts and out of our souls and out of our very hands and feet. But friends, not only did he die, but to show us that he is king over all. Not just king of the world, not just king of the cosmos, but king over death itself. To show us he rose from the dead. To show us that he and he alone is able to give everlasting life. He rose unto life. That this Jesus, the son of righteousness, rose from the dead, paying for our guilt and canceling our rebellion, overcoming the power of sin. And it is in this risen and now ascended king that we put all of our hope 
all of our trust, all of our love, and all of our submission. We do this with repentance and belief. Brothers and sisters, as you hear that, I hope and I pray that it causes your heart to leap within you. Because it is all that we have. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're wondering, how do I share the gospel? That's it. That's it. This is what we hold forth. This is who we hold out. And so friend, if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, this is what we want you to know. If you want to know more of what it means to follow this Jesus that has been held out to you today, please come find me in the back after the service. I would love to talk to you more about following Him. But for those of us, hopefully you were tuned in as I was explaining the gospel for Christians. The same good news that we've held out for those not following Christ is the same news we are called to give in our individual witnessing, in our family witnessing, in our work, in our labors, in our schools. So how do we do it? How can we move to being people who have been redeemed yet are cold-hearted in our evangelism? How is that so? This is what verse 8 holds out for us. Let's close by reflecting on the posture of John the Baptist. Look back at verse 8. He, meaning John the Baptist, was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Just as verse 2 is a nice summary of verse 1 there in John 1, so here we find verse 8 is a nice summary of verses one through, or, sorry, verses 6 and 7. There's more to it. There's more to verse 2 as I laid out a few sermons ago, but there's, there's more to verse 8 than just being a nice summary of what's already been said. This short little reflection helps us understand the very heart of John the Baptist. We see here that John took up a posture in his ministry, a posture of humility, a posture of, of pointing the glory away from himself. This is in part why I think he put on the clothes that he did. He didn't want to look good because he didn't want people looking at him. He didn't want people talking about how good of a cook he was, so he ate locusts and wild honey. He's pointing away from himself all the time. And we see this here wrapped up in this verse. He's making little of himself and much of Christ. This is why John says in John, John, the book of John, 3.30, as we'll come to see, John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. So if you're here this morning and you want to know the foundational thing that you need to be a witness the witness that God calls us to be, this is it. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we are meant to talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ and to tell them He is the Son of God and that He, is over, he has come into this world in order to save men, women, and children. We are meant to tell them exactly why the world is as it is. We are meant to tell them about sin in the human heart and that nobody and nothing can deal with it except God the Son. We are very ready to talk about our doctors and to praise the man who cured us when so many failed. We talk about some business which is better than others or about films and plays and actors and actresses and a thousand and one other things. We are always glorifying people. The world is full of it. And the Christian is meant to be praising and glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we see this here in the very, is the very heart of John the Baptist. 
that he sets an example for us in this. His message was not about who he knew or who he had met. His message was not about his experience or what he felt about God. It was about Jesus. His message is about Jesus. So that when he sees Jesus, as we'll get to eventually, he declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John realized that salvation did not belong to him. He recognized that he was but a messenger and not the message itself. He was sent by God, but he was not God. Or as it says here, he was not the light. No, John realized the fundamental truth that brings great freedom to our declaration of Jesus. And I want you to see this and hear this today. If you want freedom to evangelize your neighbors, to share the gospel with your co-workers, to have those hard conversations with your own family members, if you want freedom, here it is. That we have been given a message, but God Himself is the one who shines into darkness. We do not become the light. Jesus is the light. We are simply reflectors of it. So what about you? Some fear witnessing because they don't feel confident enough in their persuasive powers or their ability to answer all the imaginable objections to the gospel. Some fear that they are too simple of people, that they are not well versed in the Bible, and they are not people people. Some of you would claim that about yourselves, that you're not people people. But friends, declaring the goodness and the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for extroverts. It's not just for pastors or theologians. It's not just for those who have read all the books or been Christians for many, many, many years. The power of evangelism is not in our knowledge or our ability or our experiences or our feelings. It is in Jesus Christ. To think that you can't share the gospel because of yourself, that's not humility. Oh no, friends, you're not actually being pious. But you're being prideful and doubtful. That's thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. That's a denial of God's blessing upon His gospel just because it is spoken by you. That you somehow can undo the power of God in His gospel because you're you. Friend, do not doubt the power of God to add His blessing upon your words when you speak of Christ. What does Romans 1.16 say? That we believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. That the gospel, not the messenger of the gospel, not the ignorant or the simple, nor the wise but the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. The message is the power, not the messenger. So friend, cast the seed and let God grow it where he desires. When it says that John was not the light, it means that he realized that he was not but a messenger, a voice crying out, but Jesus, he's the word. He's the light. And he's the one who brings salvation in his arrival as he sees fit. But friends, this is more than a mere realization by John that he isn't the light. See, not being the light also shapes the manner of our witness. It frees us in how we share the gospel. 
It, it pushes us. It, it's important, so it pushes us in this direction. It's important for us to lead lives that commend our witness to Christ. But our message, our testimony, can never be based on what good people we've become. It can never be based on our own experiences. Finally, it's great to share with someone how God has worked in your life. But friend, you must understand that just sharing about your own experiences are easily refuted in today's times. Someone can simply respond, well, that's great for you, but that does not work for me. That might float your boat, but it causes mine to sink. Goodbye. No, we cannot live on just our own experiences. The thrust of verse 8 is to give us the basics of what John the Baptist was about. And then to point the focus right back where it's due, on Jesus Christ. Which brings me to a final question I want to ask you, my brothers and sisters in Christ today. Is this the posture you've taken, the posture you've taken in your witness? Is your witness to Jesus Christ solely based on your own experience? Or is it grounded in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do? Oh, what freedom comes to us in sharing. What boldness comes to us in just speaking the name of Christ and His work on the cross. The power of a risen life. To know that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords apart from our own experience in Him. To know that Christ died and rose and is reigning whether your neighbor or co-worker or family member agrees with it or not. Gives us boldness and courage. Now I could stand up here and close today's sermon by giving you a model and a method and a way to share Christ with others. We could go down the Romans road. We could spell out faith on our hands. We could walk through the ABCs of sharing the gospel. But friends, I'm not going to do that. That might be a good way to close out this sermon, but that's not me. Because in today's world, I don't believe that there is a singular method that is going to have a tremendous impact upon the world. And honestly, to do that would take the focus right off Jesus and put it back on us and what we must do. Friends, the reality is that we need every method. We need every means in our evangelism in today's world. As I mentioned last week in my sermon, we have moved into a time in our culture and in our world that's not just out of sight, out of mind Christianity, but is openly opposed to it. And so how do we approach sharing the gospel with a culture with men and women and children who hate Jesus? We must do it all. We need those who are going to make their way into the public square and sing praises to God. We need street preachers as much as we need Christian business owners. We need people sharing the gospel on social media as much as we need people knocking on the doors of their neighborhood. We need nonprofits that meet physical needs and humble housewives who share the gospel on park benches while their children play. We need godly men to stand and preach in jails while also holding out the hope of Jesus Christ to their children. 
with the downgrade of our culture and the downgrade of Christian witness, we need, what we need is not a method or a mechanism of being witnesses. We need Jesus. And we need to declare Him in any and every way possible. Friends, if the kingdom of God is ever going to be grown, we don't need methods and programs. We need the King. We need the King's messengers to announce His very arrival to every corner of the world. And so, friend, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, this is your job assignment. And I'm sorry if no one told you about this before you believed. I'm sorry if you were sold a false product that turning to Christ meant that you were, you were going to be taken off into pleasure land. and You didn't have to war, wage war on the battlefield anymore. But that's simply not true. That's cheap grace. That's grace that requires nothing of you. But the true grace of God calls us not to make much of ourselves, not toward leisure and comfort, but to stand with all of those who have come before and holding out the light that overcomes darkness. Friends, we are not the light. We have been called, though, to bear witness to the light. This was John's calling so that through him many would believe, and it's your calling too. So the only question for us to answer is, will you tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Let us pray. O oh Lord, that we may be zealous in bearing witness to Christ. O oh Lord, that we would trust you. That we would trust you in holding it out. That we would trust that you are going to do the work that none of us can do. God, I pray over those who are even here this morning who do not know you, who have not been redeemed and regenerated by the work of the Spirit, would you do that work even now in hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ held out? For those of us who do walk in the light, would you give us a renewed zeal and a renewed desire to proclaim the glories of Jesus Christ wherever we may be? May our fear and trepidation wither away in light of knowing that you are upon your throne, King Jesus. We ask all of these things in your name, Christ. Amen.